Today we're in Mark 13, starting in verse 28 through 37, if you want to turn there in your Bibles. We find ourselves in the final portion of this chapter, and as we've seen, Mark 13 takes some serious mental work to unpack. So I hope you brought your thinking caps again this morning, and I hope that those of you at home are ready to study with us. Um, Hopefully you got some coffee this morning to get the things in your brain moving. To begin with, I want to ask you a question this morning. How many of you have ever gone on a long vacation and asked someone to house sit while you're gone? Any of you? Man, we we need to get on more vacations. I asked this last service, and I think there was one family, and then the the service, there's like one person over here. we got to get on some more vacations and relax a bit more. But we all kind of know this idea, huh? We we know the idea of house-sitting. And so this is a practical situation that we can kind of understand. And usually, we let our house-sitter know when we're going to return, because it would be a bit odd if you didn't, right? But just bear with me for a second and pretend that you go on a trip, that you have a house-sitter, and you don't tell them when you're going to return. I want to give you two options for how the story goes from there. The first option is that the person is house-sitting, and they sit by the front door, attempting to figure out the exact day and time of your return. They spend their time developing charts and blueprints using mileage trackers and weather trackers and flight plans and much more. They read the news to see if anything sparks their interest to figure out the exact minute that you are going to return from your vacation. And when you return... Nothing that you requested has been accomplished on the house, but they're sitting there amongst amongst their books and their charts, and they can say in that moment, aha, I knew that you were going to return today. Aren't you proud of me? Right? That's the first option. Now, the second, second option is that the house sitter accepts that you will return, even though they don't know the exact day. And that could be in one day, in two weeks, in two years. They don't know. And so they put themselves to the task of honoring your request for caring for the house while you're gone. And when you arrive, they are slightly surprised at the timing, but most of all, they're just excited to see you. And you see that they've been active around the house and that the house has been well-tended and all your requests have been accomplished. Okay, question and answer time now, so get ready to give me an answer. Of the two options, which seems to be more in line with honoring you and your position as the owner of the home and as their friend? The first option or the second option? The second option. The second one is more honoring. And Mark 13 and its parallels in Matthew 24 and Luke 21 have long been associated with the study of the biblical last things, this word, this crazy word called eschatology. Everybody say eschatology. But what's interesting about Mark 13 and its parallels in Matthew 24 and Luke 21 is that in the early 1800s, these texts began to be interpreted in a different way than they'd been interpreted for the first, really, 1800 years of the church. They started to become a tool to figure out the exact time of Christ's second coming. An intense fascination with reading the supposed signs of the end times became a focus for many churches. But in doing so, as we're going to see in a bit, Especially within these passages, I think that to do that, to turn this into uh, a way in which we can kind of look at the tea leaves, if you will, to find the signs of when Jesus is coming, if we do that, we're going to miss out on the actual focus of this text and what the original author was trying to communicate. Specifically for our text today, the main point is not focusing on when Christ returns, but that in the meantime, because we know he will, we should be following his commands and his requests, and serving him as servants of his household. 
Because if we don't, he will find us asleep and apathetic when he does return. And so this morning, that's really what the title and the, the focus of this sermon is, is stay awake, the king is coming. You can write that, that down if you're taking notes. Stay awake, the king is coming. Now, as we jump in this morning, we need to remember that the topic of eschatology is one we need to look at humbly and with open hands and minds. There are wonderful brothers and sisters who have completely different views than what you're going to hear uh, given today. And it is a hard topic to understand. Eschatology is not just something easy, right? So we need to be humble about approaching it. But I think also in the midst of it, we also need to remember, as we've been looking at, that Christ is using eschatology to press us onward towards hope and obedience and endurance in the midst of suffering. And I would encourage you to go back and listen to the last three weeks that we've covered Mark 13, as it kind of is the foundation for what we're going to talk about today. If this is the first time you're listening, uh, it's going to be a little bit of catch-up, but we'll try and get you there. Now, over the last weeks, we have submitted to you the idea that we've been hearing from Jesus in Mark 13 as he speaks of a future event that would happen to the Jewish state within the generation of the people that he was amongst. And he has been predicting judgment on the temple and that this event will be a, a, a tearing down of the temple, if you will, and the sacrificial system and a destruction of the dead religion and paganism that was being practiced by the religious leaders of the day. And as we've shown you, we believe that this was indeed carried out in 70 AD, 70 years, um, or 40 years, excuse me, after Christ's death-ish, uh, as the Roman armies toppled Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. Now, to the Jewish people of the first century, that destruction of the temple and the removal of their sacrificial system would be a tribulation that was more intense than anything that they had ever felt before or would feel in the future. Their temple was destroyed and they were dispersed. Now, only a remnant of God's true followers would be saved as they heeded his words and as they endured to the end. And we looked at this last week. They would be saved because when they saw G uh, Jerusalem surrounded by Gentile armies, they were supposed to flee to the mountains. And while this would be a horrific experience, obviously, for the people that were enduring it, for those Christians who had heeded Jesus' words, it was actually a sign of hope, of great hope, because it meant that the Messiah... Jesus himself had fulfilled the mission for which he had been sent. In essence, Jesus was saying that this destruction of the temple in the near future, from when he was speaking in Mark 13, would show that the world order had been upset, turned upside down, and that he was indeed God incarnate. It would show that in his sacrificial death, he had paid the sins for creation. It would show that his resurrection after three days was a show of defeat to the kingdom of darkness and the adversary of God. And through his enthronement and the removal of the temple and the sacrificial system, Jesus, as the Son of Man, was given all dominion and authority by the Ancient of Days, the Father God, as the Son of Man pictured in Daniel chapter 7, in the vision that Daniel had there. And because of his death, his resurrection and ascension, Jesus, this Son of Man, this Messiah, was given all rule and authority, all dominion over the principalities and powers in the heavenlies, but also dominion and power over the nations in this earthly realm. It's just that the fullness of that dominion has not been fully realized yet here on earth. And so you and I are now living in that time when Christ fully rules and reigns in the heavenlies, and he does so over his kingdom here on earth as he sits at the right hand of the Father. And his body, the church, has been given the command to continue on the mission of Yahweh, to reconcile all creation and all men and women to himself. 
We've been sent, as the last verse of our section from last week, verse 27, speaks about. We have been sent with the power of God in union with the angels of heaven to the four corners of the ends of the earth with the power of God to preach the good news that the old order of the cosmos, the order of rebellion and destruction, has itself been destroyed and that the perfect king, the perfect priest, savior, and prophet now reigns. And this church age we now live in will one day end with the return of Christ, where he will rejoin heaven and earth to be fully reconciled, and God and man will be able to fully exist in the same realm once more. And that brings us up to this place in verse 27. And so from there, we can start to step into a transition point in the next small section and then speak about the second coming of Christ. And so let's take a look and read our section of text today from Mark 13, verse 28, all the way through verse 37. Jesus says there in verse 28, From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see these things take place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves his home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Jesus uses two parables to finish off his discourse on the Mount of Olives. And the first that we see, running from verse 28 through 31, is the lesson of the fig tree. And you can write this down this morning if you're taking notes. The lesson of the fig tree is a transition between immediate and future events. Now that's from Jesus' perspective. So the lesson of the fig tree is a transition between immediate and future events. Now at first blush, we have to admit this is kind of confusing, right? But we're going to try and break it down here. Remember that Jesus spoke these words near his death, which was somewhere in the beginning of the fourth decade AD, so around 30 to 35-ish AD. Based on current scholarship, the majority of theologians believe that Mark was written and circulated in the church sometime about 30 years later. So a good timeline to look at looks like this. Roughly 0 AD, Anno Domini, the, the year of our Lord. That's when Jesus' birth was uh, around that time. Roughly about 30 to 35 years later, that's the crucifixion and resurrection. And just prior to that was the Olivet Discourse here in Mark 13. Then you skip forward about another 25 to 30 or 35 years, right? Somewhere in there, we get to the 60 ADs where Mark was written and started to be circulated among the churches. And then about five to 10 years later, you have in 70 AD, the Roman hordes descend upon Jerusalem and they destroy the temple and remove the sacrificial system. And then from that moment on, we're in the church age that you and I now sit. So imagine yourself as a new convert in the first century church around the 60s AD. You're a Roman in the Roman Empire, you're a Gentile, and you're hearing this gospel read aloud in church during a Sunday gathering. 
And in verse 2 of chapter 13 there in Mark, you can look in your Bibles. In verse 2, Jesus says to them that the, the buildings, the temple, and the grounds around it are going to be destroyed. And by association, so will the sacrificial system. And then in verse 4, the four disciples that are with him ask Jesus to explain when this would happen. Give us a, a date. Verses 3 through 13, Jesus says to them, guys, stay calm, endure. There's going to be suffering like there's always been. You're going to be okay. And just as suffering will continue to occur, they shouldn't be afraid. Then verses 14 through 23 is the one sign and two warnings because of that sign that we went over last week. And then verses 24 through 27 is an explanation in Old Testament symbolic language of why this switching of the guard, so to speak, this taking down of the temple and the sacrificial system, and this raising up of the Messiah was such a big deal uses Old Testament symbolic language there to say that Jesus was going to be given and was given through the cross and resurrection, that place of dominion. And then Jesus finishes, he summarizes with a parable of the fig tree. So basically from verse 1 all the way through into verse 27, we know that what he's talking about, at least what I'm submitting to you is that we know, that he's talking about what happened within one generation. And we'll see that here in our next section. He uses this parable of the fig tree, and he says, just like you know, its fruit is coming when you see leaves on the tree. He says, when you see these things happening, this sign of the armies surrounding Jerusalem and the Gentiles about to desecrate the holy temple, you know that the fullness and the fruitfulness of the kingdom of God is due. Now, you might notice that it says he in verse 29, not it or the kingdom of God, but in a few of the commentaries I use to research this section, Greek scholars that are way smarter than me about Greek say that it's possible to translate that he into it is near at the very gates. And this is obviously what Luke thought because Luke uh, said this when he, in his version of the story, uh, wrote out what Jesus said. This is Luke 21:31. He says, so also when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Okay. But even up until this point, you'll notice that Jesus has not technically answered the question of verse 4. He's given a sign, he's given warnings, but he hasn't answered, when will this be? And so the disciples, they ask him for this timeline. And so here in verse 30, Jesus is speaking in 30-ish AD, and he says, guys, this will all happen, everything I've said, it'll happen within this generation. Verse 30, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. That's the plain, obvious, literal reading. And so 40-ish years later, well within one generation, in 70 AD, possibly a few years after this gospel started circulating through churches in the Roman Empire, Jesus was proven true. He was proven to be the final prophet as the Roman hordes descended upon Jerusalem under General Titus, destroying the temple brick by brick, leveling Jerusalem, and dispersing all remaining Jews throughout the known world. The church historian Eusebius, as we talked about last week, tells us that only the remnant of believing Jews who had become Christians and heeded Jesus' warnings were the ones that were saved. Just as heaven and earth are solid and cannot be moved unless God commands it so, Jesus' words proved true and will always prove true. Now, let's pause there for a moment, okay? I've, I've tried to paint for you why I think that chapter 13 up to this point was talking about something within one generation after Jesus. But let's pause because 
Any of you that, like I was, were brought up in churches that focused heavily on eschatology, and you might be familiar with words like rapture, tribulation, and millennium, you might be a bit confused here because this chapter has been used by many in a lot of contemporary thought to speak to the second coming of Christ, even what we've covered thus far up to verse 31. So let me pause here and give you a quick history so you can see that other prominent view, so I can present that to you, and so that you can kind of understand uh, the various views and decide for yourself, all right? So let's do a little bit of history here. In the mid-1600s, a movement grew based upon claims by a man living in the Ottoman Empire named Sabatai Zevi, okay? And he claimed to be the Messiah, fulfilling Jesus' statements that there would be false Christs that would arise. He rallied a large group of Jews to try and go and reestablish a Jewish homeland in what we now know as Israel. Unfortunately, the Europeans and the Russians did not take well to this idea, and so they began a series of pogroms in Europe and in Russia, and this intermixed as well with uh, the Black Plague and a number of other things for which the Jews were being blamed, and large numbers of Jews were massacred and killed. Now, this stirred an undercurrent in the dispersed Jewish communities across the world to take back their homeland so they had a safe place from which they could protect themselves. And this continued on for about 100 and 150 years. Uh, and in the beginning and into the middle of the 1800s, various groups throughout the world started to grab onto this undercurrent and began to promote an idea that many of the prophecies long held in Orthodox Christianity as having been completed in Christ and fulfilled in Christ, they switched them and they said these are actually supposed to focus upon Israel and their reemergence as a nation. And this coincided with new ideas at the time in the 1800s not found in Orthodox Christianity up until that point, such as the idea that Christians would be taken up or raptured based on a verse in 1 Thessalonians 4 so that they wouldn't have to undergo suffering or persecution or tribulation if God were to pour out his final wrath on the world at the end. And soon, various groups began teaching these new ideas. There was a group in England called the Plymouth Brethren, and by the end of the 1800s and early 1900s, in the United States, after suffering through the Civil War and running into the flu pandemic of 1918 and World War I and a ton of apocalyptic thought, these end-of-the-world apocalyptic ideas began to take full hold in new groups that were arising, groups you've probably heard of, like the Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, the Mormons, Seventh-day Adventists, as well as largely starting to move into evangelical thought and preaching. Meanwhile, a movement known as the Zionist movement was working in the midst of World War I and the reorganization of borders in the Mideast and Africa to create a potential homeland for the Jewish people. Now, you can imagine the two of these things coinciding in the fever pitch that came up with eschatology on this. Well, then, in May 14, 1948, Israel actually did become a nation at the successful vote of the newly formed United Nations. Now, all of a sudden, with that, throughout the already passionate evangelical eschatological world, Mark 13.30 started to get reinterpreted, along with Matthew 24 and Luke 21. And it started to be interpreted in a way where Jesus didn't mean the generation of people that he was in. He started to talk about a new generation. What they did was they took this idea of the fig tree and symbolized it and said, this stands for Israel. And so Israel, when it starts to flower and bloom as a new nation, that must be the generation that Jesus is talking about. 
And that generation, within one generation, will see the return, the second return of Christ. Now, if you're confused, that's because it's very confusing. There's a lot of gymnastics that have to happen, in my opinion, in order to get there. Now, this new interpretation taught that this generation that saw Israel become a nation would see the second coming of Christ. It was no longer what we have been talking about and teaching through the last three weeks. Now it was only about future events culminating in the second coming of Christ. Now, again, to be clear, good brothers and sisters who I love dearly and I know love Jesus hold this truth, and they could be right and I could be wrong. Let's just make that clear. But I just don't necessarily see it in the text, and that's why I'm presenting it to you this way. Now, this is also why in the 1980s and the year 2000, uh, those couple of decades were so packed with books on eschatology. Those of you that are older might remember the book, The Late Great Planet Earth, uh, which sparked a lot of eschatological fervor. You might remember 88 Reasons Why Jesus is Coming Back in 1988. Uh, That one doesn't get sold as much on Amazon anymore. You know what I mean? Uh, The Left Behind series hit and all the excitement around Y2K. You see, one biblical generation from 1948 meant that those alive at the time of 1948 were the ones that would see Jesus coming. And so everybody in this new interpretation thought, well, it's got to be now then. But now, as that generation grows older and passes away, people are starting to wonder if perhaps that reinterpretation of Mark 13.30 and its parallels in Matthew and Luke wasn't actually wrong. Maybe it was wrong. And the literal interpretation that lasted throughout much of orthodoxy was actually correct. Now, brothers and sisters, as someone trained in that school of eschatology for most of my life, I want to reinforce for you that this is not a salvation issue. This is not primary. If you disagree with me, that's totally okay. We can have some good discussions. But for me, as I teach this church and am responsible for good, consistent biblical interpretation and theology, knowing that I make mistakes all the time, it is my duty and my desire to try and teach what's in the Scripture. And this idea, this reinterpretation, seems like a lot of interpretive gymnastics for me. Put simply, what Jesus was saying is that the generation hearing him speak at that time on the Mount of Olives would not pass away before the temple was destroyed and he was given dominion as the Son of Man. And I think he was right. And this also helps us with other odd verses. Take this one, for example. You guys have read this with the Transfiguration. In Mark 9.1 that we did a few chapters ago, Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come in power. This is him saying Jesus himself would, would come as the Son of Man in glory and his disciples would see it. Well, the reinterpretation of Mark 13 and the other uh, places I've mentioned, uh, they basically say that he must have been mistaken here because for him to come in power wouldn't be until the second coming of Christ, which we're still waiting for. But when the temple was destroyed, it was removed and Jesus was elevated. And just because we do not see its full effect in our everyday life right now does not mean that it did not occur in the heavenly realm. To dismiss it because we don't see it in our everyday life is to focus all of the cosmos on ourselves and our experience rather than upon Christ and his truth. And it's to undercut the weightiness of the fact that Christ does indeed reign. It's just that it's in the hearts of his true body, the true church. And if we understand Mark 13 in this way, then we can be given great hope as we looked at last week. Second main point you can write down this morning is this. Because of this historical event that happened in 70 AD, 
we have assurance that Jesus will indeed return. Because his words were proven true within that one generation, that should give us great assurance that Jesus will indeed return a second time. This plain reading of Mark 13 up through verse 30 makes a ton of practical and plain sense in my opinion. And that's just my opinion. The events of 70 AD within that one generation substantiate Jesus as the final prophet and as God incarnate. But then the last verse, verse 31 and into verse 32, give us something else to look at that I believe should be separated from those events in 70 AD. And I believe verse 32 through 37 does indeed speak to the day of the Lord, which for us in 2020 is the last things in the future. And that day of the Lord includes the return of Jesus as judge and king, the resurrection of the righteous and wicked dead, judgment of those resurrected to everlasting life or everlasting contempt, and the restoration of heaven and earth for eternity future. Now, in our contemporary society, even within the church, the idea of judgment is an idea that has gotten kicked to the side. It seems too harsh, too heavy. But dear brothers and sisters, the Bible speaks truth that Jesus will return to judge the living and the dead. You and I will stand before our King and answer for all that we have done. Now praise him by the fact that he has given his grace to us and saved us and forgives us of our unrighteousness if we repent and look to him for salvation. And at the same time, we will still stand before him. What do you want that day to look like? What do you want that day to be like? So when that day comes, I believe that we have some information here, verses 32 through 37, that Jesus speaks to us about his second coming. But if you just read it on the face value of the English here, you go, how does, it, how does it break? Why do you even see a break here, Hans, as opposed to anywhere else in Mark 13? So just so you guys can see it, I'm going to give you five reasons, very quickly, five reasons why I believe that verses 1 through 31 are about that uh, immediate event within that one generation, and verses 32 through 37 are about Jesus' second coming, okay? So you can write these down and go look at them again later, but here we go. First... We see the opening there. It says, but concerning. In the Greek, this is the phrase peri de. And it's used throughout the Bible to signal a change of subject. If you want to go see other examples of it, you can go to 1 Corinthians and see multiple places where Paul says, uh, but concerning marriage, but concerning this, but concerning that, he's always switching the subject. So to the first century readers and hearers in the Greek, they would have known that this was a change of subject. Secondly, notice that verse 32 is referring to a singular that day or that hour as opposed to the plural in the rest of chapter 13, those days. For example, in verse 19, you've got a singular day versus a plural those days in the rest of the chapter. Third, verses 1 through 31, the entire point of them is Jesus is speaking to answer the question of when's the time. He's giving them unknown time. But verses 32 through 37 speak of a day in which the timing is not known. So it would be confusing if Jesus says, here's all the information you need to know about the timing. Oh, and by the way, concerning that day and hour, nobody knows. <laughs> that would be very, very, very confusing. Fourth, throughout biblical language, especially in the Old Testament, the phrase that day most often refers to the final day, the day of the Lord. You can see this throughout the Old Testament. And then fifth and lastly, 
We know, because of Matthew 24, as I'll show you in a second, that the oral tradition, alive at the time that Mark was written, held that the discourse Jesus gave on the Mount of Olives was in part referring to Jesus' second coming. It just doesn't say which portions of these chapters, Matthew 24, Luke 21, and Mark 13, were actually speaking of the second coming and which were speaking about the immediate events in that generation. How do we know this? Well, Matthew 24, who used Mark as a source in writing Matthew, says this, as Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, and this is Matthew's version of the question, tell us when will these things be, that's speaking about the temple being destroyed, no stone standing on another, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So you have at least two, if not three questions there, okay? Uh, You've got what will happen with the temple, but then also tell us when your second coming will be. And so the oral tradition that was going on was that a portion of this Olivet Discourse did indeed speak to the second coming. It's our job to figure out where that break is. So it makes sense then to view this parable of the fig tree as a transition point because just as God would hold true to his promise to judge Israel if there was indeed no repentance, his word was also going to hold true to restore those that are truly the seed of Abraham and to pronounce final judgment on all those who refuse to submit to his reign. And that event would indeed come. His word is true. And as we saw last week, just as with the historical truth of Jesus' death and resurrection, the assurance of this historical event in 70 AD gives us solid evidence that Jesus' words will not pass away. He is true. And Jesus is God. His words are true. And so he will come again. Now, now that we know that he'll come again, when will it be? Well, the answer is in verses 32 and 33. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. In short, we don't know the specific day or hour of Christ's second coming and the day of judgment, but we do know that he is coming, and so we should be awake and ready for it. Jesus uses a parable then of a master that goes away after having given his servants commands and work to accomplish, and when he returns, he will expect to see a return on his investment of the Holy Spirit and the salvation given to them. Matthew goes into far greater detail. You may have heard the parables that he uses, the parable of the talents and the parable of the final judgment. But in both of these, the master, similarly to Mark 13, returns and asks to see the return for what was graciously given. And so, just as these servants in these parables, we need to see the imperative, the command that's given to us today. And that's my final point. You can write this down. Jesus' command is to stay awake because the master may come at any moment. Stay awake. The master may come at any moment. Now, just to be clear, verses 32 and 33 are not given as a challenge to you individually to be the person that figures out when it's going to be. Can we all decide on that? So all these well-meaning, I'm sure, I have to believe they're well-meaning, people who pop up and put up signs and do all this stuff where they say, the 3rd of October is going to be the day, right? We have to give them grace because they're probably well-meaning. They're excited to see their Savior. But 
Can we all agree that verses 32 and 33 are not a challenge to those men or women to figure out the day or the hour, okay? The fact is, is you won't know. So I jokingly, every time one of those things happens, I look at Kelly and I go, dang it, now I know that day won't be the day he comes back, right? We won't know, but we do know he's coming. And so because of the validation that comes from Jesus' statements in most of chapter 13 and their fulfillment in 70 AD, we can see that Jesus will indeed return a second time. And it's not only here, we see it all throughout the word. Here's a great example in Acts chapter 1. This is Acts 1, 6 through 11. It says, So when they had come together, they asked Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. Okay, so he's re-emphasizing this. Stop worrying about the time, okay? But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, He was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. He's going to return. And the imagery here is that he was taken up in the clouds as if to link hands with Daniel 7, so that in that cloud he was taken before the Ancient of Days and given dominion over the heavenlies, and over the earth. Jesus will return to usher in the day of the Lord. He will return to usher in the resurrection of the dead, and the judgment of mankind, and the restoration of heaven and earth. Do you believe this, church? Or is this one of those things that's kind of embarrassing, that you like to push aside about your Christianity? Do you believe this? Because the Bible says it will happen, and therefore we believe it's true. But because we're only given the promise and not the timing, look at what Jesus' focus is and what the author of Mark also puts the focus on in those remaining verses. Look at 1334. He says, It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves his home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning. Those are the four watches of the the Roman uh, day. Lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, including us at Mission Fellowship in 2020, stay awake. Here, Jesus is the master of the house, the house of God, the kingdom of God. And when he left physically, he gave us commands of what we are to do while he is physically gone. Now, hours could be spent breaking this down to see what is meant by performing the work and following the commands of Christ. But for the sake of time, let's just look at a few places where Paul and Peter actually give commentary for us on what it means to be awake. Would you turn your Bibles with me to a few places? Uh, First, let's go to 1 Thessalonians 5. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians 5. If you hit the Timothys, you've gone too far. 1 Thessalonians 5, starting in verse 1. Paul says to the church at Thessalonica, Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers and sisters, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Notice that singular day of the Lord, okay? The final day. It'll come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains... Come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. 
But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. Here, Paul tells the church that they are not to fall into the trap of looking for peace and security in this life, but rather to put on faith, love, and hope in salvation. So working here looks like giving courage to one another in the midst of the world, in the midst of suffering, and building one another up. Dear church, in the midst of COVID, maybe we need to be asked the question, how are we purposefully engaging in fellowship, in building one another up, and in giving one another courage in the midst of suffering? It's sad that we are the most connected society in the history of civilization, and yet I think we're probably the most isolated as well. What steps do we need to take to reach out to one another and purposefully engage in fellowship, even if that's over FaceTime, but encourage one another and build one another up? What new ways can you purposefully build up the church, even in the midst of the current suffering? Staying awake for Paul meant faith, love, building one another up. Let's turn to 1 Peter 5. We'll see what Peter says here. 1 Peter 5. Verses 6 through 11. Peter says to the church, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Now notice, guys, that doesn't say you won't have anxieties. It actually says you will. But the Christian, it's not that they get rid of their anxieties. They cast them upon Christ. That's important to remember. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kind of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever." Peter here speaks about being watchful, and he tells us that we need to be aware that Satan is constantly seeking to destroy us. So being awake for Peter here is resisting temptations, standing firm in the faith in the midst of suffering. Dear church, in what ways are you being tempted right now? Are you being tempted to fall into the political drama that surrounds us? Are you being tempted to fall into the hatred and anger and bitterness that is creeping up in so many people's lives? Are you being tempted to numb your sadness with dysfunctional coping mechanisms? Are you being tempted to isolate and become bitter at people because they're not reaching out to you rather than you reaching out to them? What temptations do you need to be awake and resist and fight right now? It's a good question to ask. Let's go to 2 Peter 3, just to the right a little bit. 2 Peter 3. I've only got a couple more and then we'll finish up. 2 Peter 3 and verse 1. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder 
that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord, notice that singular, will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. To put it simply, Peter calls the church to holiness and unity, fighting against the sin that so easily ensnares us within our individual selves and causes division amongst the body. He calls us to be without spot or blemish, individually, and to be at peace as a body. Walking in repentance should sin rear its ugly head in our life. And so we need to ask the question this morning, in what areas do you and I need to be practicing repentance and pursuit of the holiness of God? In what ways can you and I be bringing peace amongst the body so that there's not division? Dear brothers and sisters, in what ways are you and I finding ourselves falling asleep in our faith? Maybe the current suffering and brokenness in our country and world has driven you to apathy or hopelessness. So today we need to be refreshed by this call to stay awake as dear saints and return to our first love. This week we need to purpose to press into Christ, his word, prayer, and fellowship to fight hard against the apathy that's so easily ensnaring the church right now. Let's go to one more place and we'll finish with this last section of scripture, what was read to us earlier from the letter to Titus. He says in Titus 2, 11 through 14, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So dear church, hopefully you can see that the call to stay awake is not about knowledge of the timing of Christ's return, but rather the stance of our hearts and the acts of our lives, showing that we are his people, his own possession, who are zealous for good works. We are not saved by works. We are saved by grace through faith, not of our works. But once we are saved, 
we are meant to walk in the works that he has provided beforehand. We are to build one another up, resist temptation, stand firm in our faith even when suffering rages around us, pursue holiness and unity together. These are some of the ways that we are called to stay awake and pursue Christ when it is so easy to become numb and apathetic in a world that seems to continue on in its evil as it always has. Dear brothers and sisters, Jesus could return at any moment. Stay awake. Much of the current day eschatological interpretation, I fear, has resulted in a FOMO response, fear of missing out, as if to say, pay attention to the current events or else you may miss the rapture of the church. But our text before us does not give us this perspective at all. Instead, it says Jesus will come, but there is really no reason we should sit prognosticating or strategizing about when it will be. The text literally says, no one will know. If we fall asleep and forget our mission to spread the gospel and act within his kingdom rule, he will come and find us sleeping and we will find ourselves outside the kingdom of God. We need to be vigilant, not scanning the news for the sign that gives us the day or the hour, but standing firmly in the faith of the salvation that he has purchased for us, clinging tightly to that truth. Instead, we need to stay awake and being focused on what he's called us to being the kingdom of God amidst the world and calling the lost into that kingdom. You see, Israel lulled themselves into a false faith in which they could enter into idolatry, unrepentant sin, and a refusal to practice righteousness and justice. And this blinded them so badly that when their very Messiah, their God incarnate, walked into their temple, they missed him. They were asleep. Let's stay awake so that when ju the judge the final judge comes one last time to judge not just Israel, but the entire nations. He doesn't find his people asleep. Stay awake. The master, the king is coming soon. Amen? Amen.